Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, we wanted to talk about NATO following the summit in Vilnius just a few days ago, a summit which ended with a strange ambiguity. Sweden can join, but Ukraine can't, at least not yet. NATO cannot have an office in Japan, but Japan can attend meetings. New war plans will be drawn up, but much of Europe is still not paying enough on defence. This episode, we're asking the question, has NATO always struggled with who gets to join, who spends the money on what, and the French saying no? On April 4, 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed between France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Norway, Denmark, Italy, Portugal, Iceland, Canada, and the United States. They are sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. It is a simple document, but it, if it had have existed in 1914 and in 1939, supported by the nations who are represented here today, I believe it would have prevented the acts of aggression which led to two world wars. So that was President Harry Truman speaking in 1949 at the birth of NATO. And I think it's really key to understand what's going on today, to go all the way back and think about the origins of NATO and all of its dramas throughout its history. They've all kind of focused on the same sorts of things, you know, expansion, who can join? Is this a club of democracies? Is this a club of the free world? All of these kind of ideas. Ernest Bevin, right at the beginning, called it a spiritual union of the West. And the West was defined against the Soviet Union as being free and democratic and all of these things. But that's never been quite true, has it, Helen, in that we've had plenty of members of NATO who have not been democratic or free right from the beginning. What's really notable about the original members, obviously, Tom, is that they don't include West Germany. Mm, yeah. And yet 
if you were talking about 1950s Europe, 1950s the West, you would very much have said that West Germany was a democratic country, and yet it's not until the middle of that decade that, that West Germany joins. And then only, as we'll see, I'm going to go on and talk about in really contested political circumstances, it certainly wasn't the French intention that the, the West Germans were going to come into NATO. And I think in order to see why that was, we've got to understand that in terms of security, that the fears of a number of other West European countries, particularly Britain, France, Belgium, Netherlands and Luxembourg, that had formed the first security grouping, if you like, of the Cold War world in Europe, the Western Union. As a treaty of Brussels, is that right? Yes, and that they saw West Germany or what was going to become West Germany as as much of a security threat or at least in the same space as a security threat as the Soviet Union. So when they were first asking the Americans to provide a security guarantee to them at that point, so let's say 1947, 1948, it was as much of a security threat against Germany as it was against the, the Soviet Union. And then that is obviously completely turned on its head. We'll come to the Turkey question in a moment, because as we heard from the list of members, Turkey was not one of those initial members, and it raises, if you like, a geography question. But if we just think for a moment about the the turn that actually got West Germany into NATO, we can see right from the start a real contest about who can join. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I try to think about this as... Europe has its age-old concerns. France and Britain have its age-old concern, which is Germany. And what do you do about Germany? And that is the context, obviously, after the war in which the Treaty of Brussels is signed. It's like we need to make sure that what we've just gone through isn't happening again. But the Americans are thinking about a world in a very different way. They've got this new challenge, which is the Soviet Union. And Germany is going to be a key partner or West Germany. West Germany, I should say, yes. A a buffer, isn't it? So the Americans are starting to think about the world differently to the West Europeans. And they're thinking, right, we need to make sure that we can bring West Germany into an alliance to make sure that it's part of the West against the Soviet Union. And that suddenly raises panic in France, understandably, and they are starting to think, what can they do? And I think you cannot understand how the European Union or the the EEC, common market, all of these things, they're not really understandable if you don't think about that framework. And then also Britain's retreat in power, which leaves gaps in Greece, in Turkey, in European security guarantees. It's actually American power which shapes so much of the world that we live in today. Yeah, I think if we separate that, those out into two stories, we've got the one that basically takes West Germany into NATO and the one that takes Turkey into NATO. Yeah. And they do have something in common, I think, which is the Korean War. Yeah, which, that, yeah another example of a sort of global picture. Absolutely. Is, is it something that's going on in Asia that has then profound consequences for what is supposedly a North Atlantic yes. yeah. treaty, a security framework. No one thinks that Korea is in the North Atlantic. <laughs> and if you look at the, the West German one first, what we can see is that the Truman administration started to 
think that West German rearmament was a strategic necessity in yeah. the context of the Korean War. And that was very alarming to the French. The French did not want a West German national army. And to the extent that they were willing to think about there being one, they wanted it under, this is the French government, they wanted it under some kind of supranational European control. And it was out of that impulse that there were all the discussions about creating a European defence yeah, which is the same impulse for Europe as well. The Americans are trying to say that West Europeans need to take more responsibility for themselves and they are not prepared to see Germany deindustrialized, partly again because of these security concerns. They don't want a deindustrialized, weak Germany in the heart of Europe with this new enemy on the border over in Soviet Union and obviously much far into Europe as well. So they want to see the German economy reindustrialized and they want to see Germany rearmed, both of which are causing enormous stresses in Paris and to some extent Britain, but mostly in Paris. And so you get the first European supranational movements that are starting to happen, the Schumann Declaration, which is essentially, okay, well, we will allow Germany to reindustrialize, but within a European context. So that's European coal and steel. And then the same thing is happening then with with the German remilitarization. The first attempt is through the European defense community, isn't it? And interestingly, again, the same idea, Germany can rearm, but it has to be within a European context. So we'll Europeanize the German problem and so that we can have a, a united Europe of some form facing towards the Soviet Union. And that actually gets voted down in Paris because... The French parliament refuses to ratify yeah, the, they, the treaty. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the first real bout of Euroscepticism comes in France. And it's this huge national fervor at the time. You know, the, they burst into the Marseillaise in the in the National Assembly in, in Paris when Jean Monnet, the founder of Europe, is in the gallery watching on as this is all happening. And there's a real concern that this is the end. And it's from that moment that the impetus to get West Germany into NATO begins. Yeah, I think that from the point of view of the Americans, that was always their preferred solution. Right. And it was really that they allow the French to go down the road of the European defence community as an alternative to it. And then as it becomes clear that it's going to be really quite difficult to get the thing agreed and then ratified, Eisenhower, who's president by this point, is getting more and more frustrated. He actually wants, I think, to be able to cut American defence yeah, expenditure yes. in Europe. And that he thinks that the responsible thing for the Europeans to do is essentially to create a security confederation or even federation. Yes. Really. And then that that can then be... And then the Americans can withdraw. The vehicle, yeah. yeah they could, it, it, or at the very least, that there would be a, a really serious complementarity yeah, right. between the West European political structure around the European defence community and NATO, in which it would be more balanced between what the Americans did and what the... Isn't it amazing? Yeah. <laughs> We haven't did. moved in, what, 70, in 70 years. I mean, that's still the foundational, you know, yeah, yeah, there's, struggle. There's still this problem. I mean, what, what I think that West German accession really does is put to an end any idea that NATO is for anything except for confronting the, the Soviet Union. So in accepting West Germany into NATO, that idea that it's still a bit maybe tacitly there in France in particular, to some extent perhaps in Britain, but certainly in France, that actually that there's needed security against West Germany, that's gone. I think the other thing, though, 
about the Korean War, which obviously is actually the context in which this story we've just been talking about starts, Korean War, that's in 1950, yeah. is that that's also part of the story by which Turkey comes to join NATO yes, in yeah. 1952, because the Turkish government wasn't very happy that it was left out of NATO. Turkey had been offered, was part of the Marshall Plan, but it wasn't part of, it was given martial aid, I mean by that, but it wasn't a NATO member. I think that Turkey then showed that it could demonstrate its importance hmm. to the Americans by sending troops to Korea. Yeah. But also, it was really clear by 1950, in fact, it had been clear rather earlier than this, I think, that, that the Cold War in Europe had a Mediterranean dimension to it and actually a Middle East dimension to right. it because of the fact that Stalin had some interest in expansion into the into the the Middle East and that what were you going to do about that if you didn't have Turkey in it and actually interestingly Truman when he was trying to explain to some members of the, the US Congress I think about why the US had to take over responsibility from Britain for giving economic and military aid to Turkey and to Greece said look at a map and I think that that's <laughs> yeah. absolutely the explanation then of why Turkey ends up in NATO. It's partly that it's what the Turks want and the Turks demonstrate their usefulness to the Americans. But the idea that the Soviet Union is NATO's enemy and then that you have Turkey outside it, given Turkey's position in the Black Sea yeah. and also in terms of its relationship to the Middle East, that makes actually fighting any kind of war against the Soviet Union, if that's what it was going to come to, much, much harder. It's a very different proposition if if Turkey has got a security yeah. guarantee and then for the Soviets to come via Turkey would involve NATO. And of course, Turkey is not a democratic, free member of the West. I mean, I mean, when does Spain join again? I can't remember. No, no, not Spain, Portugal. Portugal Portugal's joined. an original member. Portugal's original, and they, of course, are not a democracy mm. as well. So you're already seeing tensions and the kind of the true purpose of NATO, which is a completely legitimate purpose, and it is a concern for France, Britain as well. But it's it's principally through this global geopolitical prism, isn't it, of what are the Americans thinking? What is their primary purpose here? And then how are European partners responding responding to that? Yeah, and it's also clear that actually that the members of NATO, particularly actually North European members of NATO, I think it's the Netherlands, certainly maybe Norway, were opposed to Turkish membership. Right. And that they were so on, they did so using geographical reason saying look this is the north atlantic yeah this is our defense not you know what what's the black sea got to do with the north atlantic and the answer obviously is that it does when you're thinking geopolitically in terms of the potential threat that the soviet union posed yeah you, i think it's so fascinating to go back at go back and look at this and you see these kind of pivotal moments so it's Britain saying, look, we can no longer afford to defend Greece and Turkey and imposing on the Americans a choice, a choice probably they didn't want to make. They'd preferred if Britain could afford to continue being the security guarantor for Turkey and for Greece. And that gives you the Truman Declaration, which is, you know, we will step in and we will defend Greece and Turkey and stop them falling into the Soviet sphere of influence, which, of course, was completely plausible at the time. You'd had Czechoslovakia 
that had been invaded at this point. So this is this is the context. The Americans are standing in because of European weakness, British weakness, European weakness. And then this is where you've got, as we've discussed, you've got the Schumann Declaration and all of that. Interestingly, I think that when the debate is going on about the Schumann Declaration in the House of Commons, a note is passed along the front bench saying about the Korean War. So you've got these events that are happening all over the place and they're completely linked. And again, you have them linked in the minds of the Americans, crucially. You've got the the American commander, isn't MacArthur in, in, in Korea, Korea yeah. who is saying at the time, you need to give me a free hand here. You need to give me the ability to use nuclear weapons to, to win this in this theater. And Truman has this decision to make in in Washington. And he has to think beyond the theater in in Korea and to think about the, the, the entire world at this point. And he rejects that because of his fears about what will happen in Europe. You know, he is saying, if I give you the ability to use nuclear weapons in Korea to win that particular war, that particular bit of the Cold War, not Cold War, sorry, at that point, a hot, very hot war, then then you're going to end up with nuclear exchange in Western Europe. And so I can't allow that. Yeah, I think the other case where we can see how interconnected this is in terms of the geography yeah. of it, despite the supposed geographical focus of NATO, is the way in which the French react to the Suez crisis. Right, because which comes in 56. Which comes in 56, because it's in the aftermath of that that we see the conditions of what later might be described as Gaulism, which is going to take yes. the France yes. out of the joint command of NATO in the middle of the 1960s. And the response of the French to the, and this is obviously before de Gaulle's actually in power himself, to the, the Suez crisis is we need nuclear weapons and we can't trust the Americans. And so that is something that's happening, not because of events in Europe itself, but of events in the in the Middle East. Yeah, I think we forget in Britain, don't we, that Suez was a was a big moment for the French as well as for no, us. Absolutely. I don't think you can understand the ways in which the French would move in the 60s under de Gaulle without putting it in some context, at least about the Suez crisis. And I think that what's really significant then about the way in which de Gaulle approaches the matter is, is that he actually wants to go, he actually goes back to the question of like, can we turn our European economic community as it then was ineffectively into a security confederation? Which is ironic. Because yeah. obviously he was opposed very much to the European <laughs> defence community. And is that he is the beginning, I think, of that persistent French desire to try to make the European Union, as it now is, into something that's load-bearing in security terms and to say that it can't be a serious political union in some sense if it doesn't have a security basis and it can't take responsibility for its own security basis. And we can see that aspiration in Chirac, I think, in the late, 90s, where he actually for a while has Blair on side about that. Mm -hmm. It's really the Iraq war that brings that sort of alignment to an end. And we can see it in Macron's language more recently, obviously, about strategic autonomy. It's the same issue of the fact that NATO does security work essentially for the European Union. And from a French point of view, that is long been unsatisfactory. Yeah, you can you can understand why it is unsatisfactory in sovereignty terms. You know, it, it, it's a relatively strange setup historically, isn't it? That you have a wealthy part of the world that has long been had geopolitical power of its own, which is now 
dependent on a an, an external power for its own security, and that is so so obviously exposed in Suez, where the Americans just pull the plug on what is a, a Franco-British-Israeli operation. And we just can't do it without the Americans say so. Yeah, and I think the Suez crisis as well, both in terms of what happened in terms of the threats that Khrushchev made and then the French response to it, brings into focus this nuclear weapons question. Because I think that what we can see is that NATO becomes in time very dependent upon the American nuclear guarantee. Hey, it's Tom here. I just wanted to say how thrilled Helen and I are that you've chosen to listen to These Times podcast, along with tens of thousands of others. What you might not know, however, is that over at unheard.com, there's a whole host of content each day spanning politics, culture, ideas and analysis from some of the biggest names in journalism from around the world. Myself, I've written about everything from the war on inflation to the war in Ukraine and have some really big pieces coming up, which I think you're really going to like. There really has been no better time to join us. And by using the promo code these times, all in caps, when you sign up today at unheard.com forward slash join, you'll get three months free. That's three months free if you use the code these times when you subscribe at unheard.com forward slash join. Because I sometimes think, how did we go from just a treaty, you know, the North Atlantic Treaty into this very powerful military organization? And, and we, should, we should think about it because it's a military organization with a supreme commander that with war plans and to face a Soviet invasion. That's that's the very purpose. And after the Korean War, that's when they're really given their impetus and you agree to an American supreme commander. This is how it always functions. You have an American military commander and a European political secretary general. And so, the, But it's a military power. The power lies with the Americans. We are dependent on the Americans. I think after Suez... As you were as you were suggesting, Helen, we kind of fall into a period. As I as I understand it, I was I was speaking to a NATO official about this the other day, and they were saying that one of the crunch moments for the organisation is in the seventies, when you've had this period of you've sort of settlement. You've got into a position of as we've described it, where you've got American military dominance and it's responsible for European security. And we are dependent or reliant on nuclear weapons primarily for that in, in the last resort. And we don't put the investment into conventional military forces. And what we see towards the late 70s is that the Soviets have had a period of relatively good economic growth and they've invested in their own militaries. And this creates a panic in Western European capitals, but primarily in Washington, that we wouldn't be able to stop a Soviet invasion without resorting to nuclear weapons. And again, you go back to that fear, the sort of primeval fear at the heart of all of this that we saw in Korea, which is that if there, we cannot allow a nuclear military, a nuclear exchange in Western Europe. And so you start to see this buildup of conventional forces again in the late 70s and 80s. And according to the person I was speaking to, we're still dependent on 
much of the work that was done at this time, F-16s, tornadoes, typhoons, a lot of the weapon systems. Um, and this is what, the, and, and new war plans that are created to try and deal with Soviet power. Yeah, and I think what's really consequential about that in terms of getting us from that point to like where we are now is this interlude which comes with the end of the Cold War where it seems that those things don't matter. Yes, and I think yeah. that what we can then see is the fact that the enlargement of NATO hmm. takes place in the 90s, first of all, to Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic and then some not just former Warsaw Pact states, but former Soviet states, the the Baltic. Of, um, of course, Republics. Eastern Germany as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In a context in which there is a presumption that actually there isn't going to be any kind of conventional yeah. war. In fact, there's probably a presumption there isn't going to be any kind of war. That There's a, this period in which I think that NATO was being used or NATO membership was being used in a way, I think, in part to compensate Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic for the fact that European Union membership was quite slow. Right, yeah, in, you can in, bring them in, in more quickly, yeah. And that actually that for the, the Baltic Republic's European Union membership and NATO membership went hand in hand in the same year. But I think that this is a period in which nobody is quite thinking that actually giving a security guarantee to these states is actually going to involve fighting any kind of war, yeah. whether it's conventional or... Because they're new, a thing of the past. New, they're a thing of the past. But it's interesting where Ukraine is concerned mm. that obviously a rather different position is taken from the start. So you can actually see a Ukrainian government starting to push for NATO membership going back to 2005 when President Yushchenko came in yeah. after, as part of the well, the Orange Revolution in in, in in Ukraine and made it an absolute priority of securing for Ukraine NATO membership and European Union membership and obviously wasn't able to do either. And I think we can see then if we move to the point in which the Americans were pushing for Ukraine's membership, which was 2008. Yeah, under George Bush. Under yeah. George Bush Jr., that there's very deep reluctance in France and Germany even really to think about that because there is a sense, I think, in which that this is just not the same kind of... This isn't using NATO for symbolic purposes. Even then, there's a sense that this might be actual security guarantees that have would actually have to be delivered. Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom, that would, that would have consequences. And it isn't, I think, just that they don't want to antagonise Russia, though I think that's partly what's going on that this is just much more real yeah with where ukraine is and if it, concerned. And, and if nato is a an organization that represents the spirit of the west going all the way back to the start and the eu is also another body that is involved you, the two can't get out of sync can they 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 both emerged at the same time they both represent the same fundamental idea and so you you can't have Europe, the European Union expanding way beyond NATO's borders and you can't have it the other way around as well. Well, I think that that, that is quite complicated though because clearly that European Union membership, I think, for those states sitting between Germany and Russia did yeah. presuppose NATO membership because the European Union couldn't offer any kind of yeah, security guarantee right, them. But the place where obviously the fault line is most evident is the Turkey 
question because you have yeah, Turkey course, yeah. inside yeah. NATO and not inside the and not inside the European Union. And then you have other members of the European Union that are neutral. Yeah. Including probably most consequentially Austria. So I think there's actually a long standing misalignment between the EU and NATO yeah. that is consequential. Causes and the, tensions. Yeah, and the, the place where it when matters in terms of where we are now is, I think, around Ukraine. Not because Ukraine was going to get full European Union membership, but it was negotiating or had negotiated Yanukovych, who wasn't an Orange Revolution president in power between 2010 and 2000 and early 2014 in Ukraine. He negotiated associate EU membership for Ukraine then pulled the plug on that and set in motion the events that led to his removal from power. And obviously then the European Union was hopeless. I mean, I, I mean yeah. by that and said it had no capacity to respond yeah. when Putin then annexed Crimea from Ukraine after Nikovic's exit from power. So that was the point where you can see, I think, that the for the border states that yeah. actually... NATO membership and EU membership had to go together and even half even this weak associate yeah. membership form and it didn't happen and that's one part of the context in which we're now in where Ukraine's concerned yeah. and it's what happens with where Ukraine is now with NATO membership that we're going to start with after the break Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ben Wallace also had some advice for Kiev as you keep on asking for more and more weapons and support, and that was that people want to see gratitude. How do you respond to that? Do you think you're not being grateful enough? I believe that we were always grateful to the UK. We were always grateful to the Prime Minister, or to Prime Ministers, and the Minister of Defence. Because the people in the United Kingdom have always supported Ukraine. We're grateful for this. President Biden pumping his fist in the air as Secretary General Stoltenberg welcomed Sweden to the historic NATO summit in Lithuania. After Turkey dropped its long-held opposition following months of negotiations. NATO and Japan have laid out a fresh plan for the next four years to increase security cooperation between both sides. So that was obviously in news clips from the summit in Vilnius last week. And I think what you hear there is the first real bits of tension over Ukraine, the war in Ukraine and 
the consequences for NATO. Almost not, I mean, not the first bit of tension since the war began, because it's obviously always been a struggle internally. But it felt like there was so much unity for a, for a long time that everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet. But when it comes to the crunch, and you have to decide, well, is Ukraine going to join NATO or not? When, how, what does that mean? All of those difficult questions, once you start having to answer them, then you then it becomes very difficult. And you saw this at the summit, because while there's a war going on, and while Russian forces are in Ukraine, and either in Crimea or in the Donbass, then how can Ukraine possibly join NATO? Because it immediately means that you're at war. NATO is at war with Russia. And Biden was very clear about that's the reason why you can't do it. But I mean, it does raise very awkward questions. So Russia can really veto Ukrainian membership permanently. So as long as it has forces in Ukraine, and as long as the West recognizes Crimea as part of Ukraine, presumably, I mean, that just creates a permanent problem for Ukrainian membership. And this is some of the discussions that were happening in in Vilnius. And I think it it came down to a a disagreement, really, between most of Europe, which has come to the conclusion, as I was told, that long term, it's more risky for Europe to not bring Ukraine into NATO than it is to leave them out. You might get this kind of war happening again. And that's the shift that's happened. And the key player in that is Macron, who seems to have shifted quite a bit from the start of the war when he was softer towards Russia and is now pretty much in line with the UK on the sort of hawkish end of of the spectrum. And actually, it's now Germany and the United States who put the brakes on at the summit. And the, the debate was whether you say Ukraine, in quotes, will get into NATO at some point. Or what you ended up, which was a very circular offer to Ukraine, that it can join at some point when agreement has been reached, which there might never be agreement. Yeah, the words are, I mean, they're kind of like mastery in a way of using the English language. We will be in a position to an extended invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. <laughs> and obviously, I might use that on my kids at some point. <laughs> obviously, from Zelensky's point of view, this was to use his word, absurd. Yeah, which is obviously true. (laughs) But at the same time, as you can see exactly what the problem is for the reasons that you've outlined, Tom, is is that there simply isn't the will in, actually, I would say, most European countries. Yeah, they probably like to hide behind the Americans. Yeah, Yeah. and certainly not in, in the United States, to go to war with Russia for Ukraine's independence. And that's what actually offering the security guarantee that NATO does means because a war against one is a a war against all. And I think it's also interesting to see the ways in which Ukraine is in part being in some sense bought off, it's not quite the right way of putting it, appeased might be the better way of being given essentially a promise that there will be bilateral security commitments to Ukraine. Yeah. Via the G7, though, the group of seven, which I, is a very different proposition than giving 
any kind of commitment through because the G seven is just an economic forum, or is it, well, I mean, it's, it's sort of ill defined, undefined, isn't it? As a as a forum, and it's again another one of these bodies that is somehow representative of the spirit of the West, except for the fact, obviously, that it includes Japan, and then yeah. raises the question of what does what's Japan's relationship to NATO, and we're going to come onto that, obviously, yeah. in the case of China, but. It's also really revealing, I think, in this, in that it's clear that Turkey has been really quite important yes. to the ability of NATO states to support Ukraine through this war. And yet, clearly, Turkey is not a member no. uh, of the, the G7 and that this idea that actually you can sort of almost like flip around between these different architectures and that they're actually anything like the same kind of security provision can be made through them obviously doesn't make any sense at all. The only load-bearing security actor in this story is NATO itself. Yeah, And I think that it's clear that unless the, the war were to come to an end on quite strongly Ukrainian terms, it's quite difficult to see how Ukraine is coming into NATO in the in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean that's and that's Putin's point. I, uh, this is this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to stop it. And I guess he knows he must know that he can stop it almost permanently by camping out if he can on Ukrainian territory. That's got to be the goal now. I mean, I, I did put this to somebody in in the UK government and in NATO, and they acknowledge the problem. I mean, they they would say that. It's very difficult for Russia to camp out permanently, to, to do this forever. It costs an extraordinary amount of money, manpower, all of that. And so it's not as easy as, as I'm suggesting that they can, if they just hold on to their positions, they can permanently veto Ukrainian membership. But I mean, I don't know, in Crimea, that's, it, it does look much more likely that they could keep hold of Crimea permanently without as much economic and military cost as it, as the current war in, in, in the East. I mean, I think there's probably potential for some kind of, fudge is probably the wrong word, but some kind of settlement over Ukraine if we got into that territory. I think, though, the interesting thing long-term here is what it would mean to for certain European governments, perhaps, particularly perhaps the German government, to be party to giving a NATO security commitment to a post-war Ukraine when everybody understands that this might actually involve fighting. Yes, yeah. Because that is not something, as I said, going back to what we were talking about before the break, that's really there when the round of NATO extensions of membership were offered in the in the 90s or in the first part of the... 2000s and that this is in a context in which the possibility of war in Europe is now very much there because we've all lived through it we we know that yeah well, that, well if that we the do end this, of history narrative was just nonsense yeah and if we do extend this guarantee and Russia doesn't take warning then we might find ourselves actually fighting sending british soldiers or german soldiers french soldiers over into ukraine do we actually want that i mean does it does make you think doesn't it that like turkish membership of the eu ukraine could 
have a permanent application into NATO that never actually is realized. I could easily imagine that happening. When I was speaking to somebody very senior in NATO, he was saying that they just don't know what President Biden and Chancellor Schultz actually think about this. Like, do they're, they're cautious, and that's because I mean, ultimately the U.S. bears the weight of responsibility here. So you would imagine you, you can see why they are the most cautious, and Germany is the biggest power in Europe. So again, you can see why the, you know these these two great powers are the most cautious over this question is is understandable, but they don't know whether President Biden has decided Ukraine shouldn't join NATO permanently, whether he deep down that's what he thinks, whether he thinks the risk is just too great for the American interest, or whether the time is just not right. Like the American diplomats are saying internally, time's not right. You know, we need to concentrate on Ukraine winning this war. We don't want any more escalatory decisions, those kind of things. But we don't know what they think. I mean, I think one of the things that's going on here is obviously that the Americans, as we've seen, have got the capacity to provide a lot of military support for Ukraine outside the framework of NATO. Like Israel. I think Biden said Israel, didn't he? Uh, And I, I think that one of the things maybe going on with Macron isn't actually that he's really that keen on the idea that French soldiers should have to go and fight in Crimea, say, yeah. if there were a war over Crimea in a context in which Ukraine was a member of NATO. But I think that there's something in the idea of supporting Ukraine in NATO and bringing Ukraine into the European Union that is a version for him of recharging again the European project yeah. into something that's more existential again yeah than and tied to the strategic autonomy question actually paradoxically than just the European Union being dominated by the single market and the euro the economic yeah because there's n- there's nothing that's undermined this case for strategic autonomy more than this war and actually the french ambiguity at the mm-hmm. start raised concerns in eastern europe places like poland most obviously where they when they look towards the American response and the French response and thought, you know, obviously I'll take the American response every day. Why would I exchange NATO for the European Union as my primary security guarantee? It doesn't make any sense. And I think that you're starting to get into these same questions as well with Sweden. I mean, if you speak to the people in, in NATO, they would say, you've got two things in terms of the enlargement that happened. You have the battle over Ukraine and the kind of wording of what the offer is going to be to Ukraine. But then you have this quite historic decision that Sweden will join. And this is Erdogan again, Turkey playing a pivotal role in this, giving a handshake guarantee that he will allow Swedish membership of NATO. It had been caught up in, I think, kind of internal disputes of... Uh, Isla- well, there was a lot of different things going on, but obviously he was particularly unhappy with the way in which he with what he regards as the unacceptable from his point of view way in which the Swedish government deals with Kurdish groups who deems terrorists. So when Sweden and Finland made their applications to join NATO at the same time and Finland joined in April and it looked actually that Sweden was stuck in limbo for quite some time. It was quite a reverse that earlier made at the, the summit which would suggest he was given something reasonably 
substantial. Something on F- F-16s, yeah. I think. There's a French diplomat, Gerard Aureau, who was the French ambassador to the United States. And he, I mean, he, he argues that a lot of Western European countries are hiding behind American reticence over Ukraine. They, they secretly share that reticence. But he, he said that Erdogan had, had played that game with Sweden well and had won some pretty big concessions from the from the United States on military equipment which is which is interesting there's a lot of stuff going on to the surface here as well and the turkey question obviously brings the french question up in a in a different form because if we go back to the pre-pandemic period when macron was really shifting into his strategic autonomy mode and he gave that interview was it to the economist oh it's economist when he yeah. said about the the nature was experiencing a brain death yes what a pushed him, as he saw it, to that point where he said that, was his utter exasperation with Turkey and what Turkey was doing in Syria. And then obviously there's the conflicts in the East Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece. Macron was sending off a warship to the East Mediterranean in the months preceding, or I think it was the summer maybe, preceding the pandemic. So the the Turkey question and the elevation of Turkey's importance within NATO was a result of the EU war, Russia's war against Ukraine also poses some issues for the French position. And I think what's really noticeable about how all this connects together and the fact that it again extends into global geopolitics is that it's the French, obviously, who were at least the ones who were out loud saying that NATO wasn't going to have an office in Japan. Yes. And it's quite notable that when you look at the the language that's being deployed by French officials and actually previously by Macron, the argument that they're making is geography. Yeah, look at is, the map. Yeah, is is one of the French officials said NATO means North Atlantic Treaty Organization articles 5 and 6 that, that are geographic. And as we've already said, this was actually an argument that was being made by North Europeans countries against enlargement to include Turkey yep. in the early 1950s. And now this geography argument is being used to say, look, it's about geography in Russia and yep. it's not about China. But if you think about it from the American point of view, there isn't any way that they're going to disentangle the China question and the Russia yeah. question. And it has from the start, hasn't it? You know, the war in Korea was a prime motivation for getting West Germany into NATO. It gives it its military organization. It gives it its supreme commander. You know, this is this has been a question right from the beginning. And of course, just look at the membership list of NATO. There's plenty of countries that you can't call a Atlantic power, you know, Romania or Austria, let alone Turkey. I mean, Italy even. They're hardly an Atlantic player. So this isn't this isn't really quite right. I mean, it's it's a, it's a clever soundbite. It obviously has some sense to it. You know, you you do wonder what use is having an, a NATO office in Japan. But the answer is also quite obvious: is that this is all clearly connected. You have Australia, New Zealand, Japan attending the NATO summit. You have those same group of countries attending G7 summits now regularly, I think alongside South Korea and occasionally India. So you have these two organizations that are expressions to some extent of the West. But what we mean really is American power, as in essence, and the European Union also being an expression of the West. 
So you've got you've got lots of links, and the way it was described to me is that you you've got Japan who has the similar concerns to lots of Western countries, lots of you know security concerns, and they're being invited in. So you could you can understand why NATO says, well, instead of you coming to these summits and that being the prime place where we can have these discussions, we'll have a an office in Tokyo. And we can be able to discuss these things securely. You know, I think that one of the things that's really notable here is is that obviously Japan's primary focus is the China question, yeah, yeah. and the Taiwan question, perhaps in particular. Obviously, there's some disputes about various islands, but if Taiwan were unified as part of China, that obviously would really change Japan's security prospects. For the worse. Yeah. And you can see going back, I think, really to at least 2013 and maybe a bit earlier than that, that Japan has become a significantly more security orientated state mm, than yes, it was. Yes. But I think it is also really noticeable that this has only really started to take on a NATO dimension to it since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And that Japan has participated in the sanctions. It hasn't pulled out of all of the, the oil and gas, all the Japanese companies haven't pulled out of oil and gas projects, but it's given pretty sizable humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. And because Japan is now thinking about having a Russia question, because obviously there's some disputes, historical disputes there yeah. as well about territory, at the same time as it's got a very obvious China f- focus, then that actually puts it in quite a similar position to both the United States and those European states, perhaps Britain, that are most focused on the China. Uh, the same question. with Australia as well. Yeah. And so, though it's not so clear that maybe Australia is quite engaging with, well, obviously it has been invited though to the NATO summit, I was going to say not engaging with NATO in quite the, the same way. But I think that it's the way in which the China question and the Russia question have, it's not that they were ever not joined up, but that they become more joined up as a result of Russia's war is actually changing the NATO. And the, the alliance, the stated alliance between Russia and China. Mm. Obviously, that is, that is longstanding. I think you could argue that China and Russia were geopolitically moving closer to each other since at least the beginning of, the, uh, the least beginning of this century. I think it's the war that has turned it into a into a, a sharper yeah. question. I should give a quick shout out here to to Liz Truss, the forgotten prime minister, who had this idea of making the G7 an economic NATO. Mm-hmm. Now it's quite interesting that now, given what just happened at NATO with the G7 announcement, that you are seeing this link up that you've you've securitized. The G7. It all. It all started. That sort of the chessboard is starting to make sense. I think that the chessboard is moving, but I think that the the fundamental problem with thinking that the G7 is going to be load bearing is there's no kind of like organisational capacity around it in security terms. What does it mean for the G7 to talk, talk the language of security commitments? But it goes back like to the Turkey yeah. question. It's that is why, and this is the paradox in one sense that geography really does matter yeah when you look at the map turkey is in nato for a very clear reason 
And yet at the same time, that when you try and apply the geography argument to that's why it's not about China, it doesn't really work because yeah. geopolitics exists in this global space. And regardless, I think, of what framework, institutional framework, these things are being considered, there's an underlying question and the lying difficulty, particularly, I think, for most of the European countries, not for Poland, about what does it mean to give security commitments to other states Yeah. in an age when that actually might mean your soldiers going and fighting wars and that at a time in which there are all kinds of demands on public expenditure Yeah. that actually you, being giving these security guarantees meaning that you have to have significant armed forces to back them up is actually politically quite difficult. Yeah, and I think this is where we get back to the late 70s, early 80s again, and we feel like we're into that same kind of space where we've had this period of lack of investment in conventional military forces. And one of the big discussions that has been taking place uh, ahead of this summit in Vilnius was this reintroduction of war plans and and war planning to face a possible you know security challenge from Russia into into Europe not just into Ukraine into into NATO Europe and it has come to similar conclusions that its its conventional military forces aren't capable and they are not structured enough and so what you had was agreements on on these war plans and that's going to create this kind of cascade effect where you have countries that will then commit to have a certain sized force that would be able to do a certain thing in a nature in a nato in a, in an overall nato military force so if you're britain and you've committed to whatever it is we've committed to, well, then you need a certain number of troops, you need a certain number, of, a certain amount of air fire, you need the whole package. And obviously, we don't have that at the moment. They're very clear about the fact that we don't have that. Not many Western countries have it. And underlying all of this, of course, again, is what is this question of what does a military commitment to other countries mean? And a, a question mark hangs over the United States because the United States as as it was explained to me, they have a certain number of troops in in Europe. They have a certain number of troops in the Indo-Pacific. And then they have a certain number of troops in the United States. And the capacity that they have in the States is like a surge capacity that can go east or west, depending on whether there is a an, an invasion or a war that they need to get involved in. And the obvious question that I asked was, well, what happens if there is a war in both theatres at the same time? Do the Americans have enough capacity to send troops and the, enough equipment into both theatres? And the you know the NATO official said to me, "Well, that there is the is the billion dollar question of geopolitics at the moment, and that's we just we just don't know. So it's impossible to disentangle Japan and China question from the European question because ultimately." Both sides are dependent on one power, which is the United States, to to load bear in any in any situation. Yeah, and I think that this really brings some of the fault lines in NATO around the relationship between domestic politics and geopolitics to the fore. Because whatever might be true about whether what kinds of war the United States can fight and whether they could fight in two fields, as you say, yeah. in the same time. It is just really clear, I think, even after Russia's invasion of 
Ukraine, that there just is not the appetite in most Western European countries. I think, as we said, Poland is clearly an exception where there's a commitment to move into something like 4% of GDP going on defence. Yeah. Yeah. Really to moving to defence-orientated politics. Yeah. And in that, people, lots of people might understand that the world has become a lot more geopolitical than it was say 20 years ago or 30 in the 90s they might understand that it's a lot more geopolitically complicated in some sense even than it was in the cold war because this is now about russia and china but that doesn't mean that they want to give up domestic priorities no, and the domestic yeah. priorities are bigger than ever, aren't they? Because of an aging population and all of these things that that mean just day to day government is more expensive than it was. So then add on four percent GDP on defence. I'm not sure that that gets a democratic mandate. And it's not even just the aging populations. I mean, we're talking about governments that are committed to essentially procuring an energy revolution by 2050, and so. The assumptions, I think, in which the political class in most Western European countries certainly operate is not, I think, equipped to deal with the demands that is now that, that are now being put upon it. Yeah. And I think it's clear that the Americans actually can't provide all the answers well, to the these Amer- questions and the ways in which yeah. it's not really clear when you look at it that they really provided the answers during the Cold War period. Either there's many more tensions than I think they look like on the the surface, but the demands now are on another level of complexity. Yeah, because of the size and power of China, ultimately. But yeah, but also domestic public opinion in the United States is already very clearly exhausted by its commitments globally. I mean, maybe that's too far, but Clearly, Donald Trump sees the world in a very different way, and as does somebody like Ron DeSantis, who is very clear that China is the main security threat. America needs to turn to China. Europe needs to look after itself. This is the growing movement in Washington. I mean, Trump just sees it in a completely different way, though, because he, I mean, he will say things like, why don't we just let Japan have a nuclear weapon? Why do we have to bear the, the the responsibility for Japan? They're a competitor, as a Germany. Yeah, I think that what we're going to see, and we're obviously going to turn to this in future episodes, is is that there's a significant domestic political contest about American power still going on. That actually Trump's defeat in the 2020 election and Biden's victory did not settle yeah. that question. So we don't just live in a geopolitically very complicated world we live in one in which that there is a really consequential political contest going on in the dominant power about what its power can be should be where the limits of its power are and that basic question of uh, what is an american president essentially willing to allow american soldiers to die for yeah and that there is no clear answer to that question it's quite a hard question, as we've seen for, for Joe Biden to answer. But you go into a completely different political space if we were to see the return of a Trump president. Yeah. Obviously. Oh well, oh, we should turn to that in a future episode. Absolutely fascinating. Probably the key question of the twenty first century because it has such knock on effects for all of us. All of these things that we're building now, these NATO summits, they're all predicated 
on US power and the US having a certain size and commitment. And maybe that will continue to be in 100 years time, but we just don't know. And in a couple of weeks time, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden and how we might understand some of these questions about American power through Joe Biden's political career. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share on social media and shout about it to your friends and family.